Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're discussing how corruption begets more corruption. The corruption of the best things gives rise to the worst, said the Scottish philosopher David Hume. But how do we define corruption? Corruption involves the abuse of public or private office for personal gain. It includes bribery that's the giving or receiving of a payment in order to influence the action of an official. We could say that corruption is any dishonest behavior by those in a position of power. This not only includes giving or accepting bribes, but also peddling influences, manipulating elections, or diverting funds from their intended purpose. So, why do some people decide to act honestly and comply with the rules and some others just don't? Do corrupt rulers generate corrupt citizens? These are some of the questions our guest, Nicolas Eisenman, from Sciences Po University in Paris, is seeking to answer in a recent paper, and he's here with us now. Uh, Nicolas, let me ask you, first of all, would you agree with that uh, definition we've just given? Quite a narrow definition of corruption. Well, hi, first. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me here. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad, very glad to be here. Uh, and yes, uh, basically, I think that's a broad but uh, a very accurate definition of corruption. I think corruption involves uh, public, uh, the public sphere, but also private and other organizations. But I think it's a, it's a good, good definition of corruption. Now, in your recent paper, The Power of Exemplarity on How Corruption Spurs Corruption, in other words, people learn it off others almost, I guess, is, is, is what you're saying. They, they do what they see others doing. Uh, you use data from Mexico to measure the immediate impact of corruption on rules, uh, you know, on compliance and, and values. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what you found? Yeah, sure. So let me first tell you a brief, uh, brief de- description of the methodology I use because I think that's that's kind of important. So basically what I do uh, is I take data from uh, official audit reports of the federal government. Basically what they do is they, they go and perform some audits in uh, some of the municipalities of the country. Uh, so basically I use this as an objective measure of corruption. Then what I do is I test if the release of these corruption reports has any uh, kind of impact on people's behavior in terms of honesty. So to do that, I use basically two uh, sources of information. The first one is, again, an objective measure of dishonesty, which is cheating rates on high school students. Uh, the second one is a more subjective measure, which is uh, basically the result of a value survey where people uh, report their self, self-perceived uh, level of honesty and trust. And what I do finally is I test if in those particular municipalities and in those particular years in which corruption was actually published, there's a, let's call it statistically unusual increase in dishonest behavior, which I measure with, this, with these two variables. Uh, so basically I have two main uh, results. The first one is that uh, as expected in those municipalities in which the mayor was discovered being corrupt, which again I measure with this uh, objective measure of, of corruption, people react by instantaneously changing their values towards honesty. So basically they start to agree more often with statements like to get ahead in life you need to cheat or laws were made to be broken or or I mean this kind of this kind of statements. So, so, which, so just to be very yeah. precise about this then, what you found is that when ordinary citizens see their officials cheating Mm-hmm. they in various ways think, well, it's okay for me to cheat as well, whether it's in school exams or other 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 ways. Yeah, exactly. So I think what happens, I mean, my main hypothesis is that you learn from the examples. So you know that in your society there are some social norms. Uh, so you basically want to comply with those social norms. But then when you realize that your leaders are corrupt, then you start to think that corruption is maybe not such a bad thing. 
Uh, so you, as an adult, change your own values, you transmit this to your own kids, and then your kids, as a consequence, uh, start to be more dishonest. So, so it's so. an erosion of moral values, morals in, in society. So exactly, yeah, yeah. Bit it's by bit, as they see examples of, of that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, this is very, very consistent with, you know, this uh, social learning kind of theories in which you learn from the example, you know what your leaders do, and you do the same, so it's kind of uh, in, in that line. Does it, does it matter even if people started out thinking that their political leaders were good and therefore had, you know, good... I mean, does it, is it worse when they suddenly see they're not so good? Exactly, yeah. So another interesting result uh, that I find is that this effect is especially big in those municipalities where the government was perceived as transparent before. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a survey that, that uh, they do every, I think, two or three years. So I take the survey of 2007, and I showed that in those municipalities where people ranked the government that was corrupt as a transparent government, then the effect is bigger. So this is kind of a deception story. Is it possible to compare what you found in Mexico to what we think is happening across the EBRD region? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I think, so first I think the EBRD region uh, has been doing better, at least some of the country has been doing better. So if you compare uh, some of the indexes of perceived corruption of 2016 and 10 years ago or 15 years ago, then there is a clear improvement. But there's still some space to catch up, particularly, you know, some of the, some of the post-communist country with the, with the most, uh, most developed countries. Uh, but yes, I mean, I think this is a general, general result in terms that uh, culture matters. You know, uh, in Mexico, in DBRD countries, everywhere, one of the main reasons of corruption is that, you know, moral values are wrong. So, so I think it's definitely, you know, uh, you know it, it also would work in, in, in these kind of countries. And corruption can take many, many forms, can't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, again, I think corruption, so we usually think of corruption in terms of what the public sector does, which is also, I mean, which is, of we, course... We think of someone getting an envelope full of money and doing something as an official, but actually it's way beyond that. Yeah, it? exactly. It's, it's way beyond that. So so you, you can find corruption in almost any organization, uh, you know, civil society, religious organization, NGOs, you name it. Uh, and this is the reason why I think culture is so important, basically, because when you when you find that corruption is widespread, it's something systemic, then corruption is everywhere. It's not only what you said, taking the envelope in the public sector. And what affects, do you think, the rate of corruption in society? Well, so I think there are many, many, many bad consequences of corruption. Uh, we usually think about the most obvious and direct costs. For example, if you, as a government, need to uh, build a school with the taxpaying money, sorry, taxpayers' money, then uh, if you take that money, you won't build a school, and that's a very obvious and direct, direct effect. I mean, public services will be will be worse. But then there are many other not so obvious, uh, not so obvious effects, which I think are as important as that. And again, uh, the, the, the erosion of moral of moral values is uh, more indirect, maybe more subtle effect, but still very important. Precisely because when you start with that, when you start to erode uh, the, the people's social norms, then it gets very widespread, and you can find you know this this uh, this different type of corruption, as we said, in many many different types of institutions. And it really holds back economic growth, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So the literature is very clear about this uh, corruption has a very bad effect for growth, and, and we, we all know that. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives. And of course, we really want to hear what you think. You can contact us at EBRD on Twitter and on Facebook with the hashtag 
Pocket Economics. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing corruption with our guest Nicholas Eisenman. And Nicholas, is there a consensus on which countries are the most corrupt around the world? Well, there are some indexes which uh, I mean people used to used to believe in. Uh, usually, there are perception indexes. So you have, for example, this corruption perception index, which is made by Transparency, this this very very well known organization. Transparency International, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so there, for example, if you take a look to the EBRD countries, you can see that some of them uh, rank quite bad. So, for example, the Balkans and uh, I know countries like Kosovo, for example, rank in the position. 26 out of 176 countries, meaning that it's in the top, let's say, 15 most corrupt countries in the in the world. And I think, uh, generally speaking, these are these are good indexes, at least in terms of of perception. Uh, it's not real corruption; it's not observed objective corruption. But as a perception index, I think it's uh, it's very good. What do you think makes the difference between success or failure when a country is fighting corruption? What distinguishes countries which really try to control this and, and countries which just don't and can't? Well, I think there are many reasons uh, why some of these policies work and some others do not work. Uh, generally, I would say that those countries that improve the, you know, the, 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 this, I mean, in these kind of indexes, they basically increase the monitoring and punishment of public officials. So basically, you want to show with the example that being corrupt is not free. Uh, but then again, there are, there, are many things, uh, there are many things you can do. I, I mean, I would go in that direction for sure. Is it relevant whether a country is rich or poor in terms of how corrupt it is? It is relevant. Uh, there's a clear correlation between uh, poverty and corruption. That's that's for sure. What is not obvious is, of course, the causation. I mean, it can go. I mean, it can go in, bo in both ways, and it probably does. Uh, but anyway, I think there are many reasons to think that poverty generates corruption. Uh, to begin with, usually public officials in developing countries are paid very bad, and and that's certainly a. a plausible cause of corruption. Uh, second, the rule of law and punishment are usually more difficult to enforce in these kind of countries for many reasons. First, because it's more costly. Second, because they have like more, 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 you know, settled elites. Uh, the separation of power there is not so good. So, so all all these things are, are very bad, of course, for corruption. Uh, and finally, I think I mean when you take a look, for example, to to surveys, you see that in poor countries they have different values towards corruption. So if you see the, the results in developing countries, usually they seem to be people seem to be more against corruption than 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 in the rest of the countries. And and that's again we don't know if this is a cause of a, or a consequence, but I think this certainly has an effect on, 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 on corruption. It's very difficult to fight in some countries. You know, if I think about some of the examples that we've had over the years where there's been a form of state capture, uh, where the state, uh, the corrupt uh, administration is so corrupt, is earning so much money from it, gives it so much control over everything that it's very hard then to fight that because they have control of the judiciary, they have control of, of almost every lever you might want to use. How, what do you do about that? Exactly. No, so so that, that, that's, a, that's the real problem because it's very difficult to implement you know, good policies when they are not well implemented, then they just don't work. And in those countries, it's very difficult to implement those policies. But I think there are many things that could be done uh, and that worked in many, many, many situations in many countries. So one of them, which I think is, is, is very important, is to encourage and, and, and try to help the countries to release all the data they have. This uh, open data kind of movement is, is very, I think it's, it's very revolutionary in a way because basically what you're doing is you are kind of crowds, crowdsourcing the, the, the monitoring of the, of, the, of the rulers. 
And I think that's that's a good way to start, you know, when, when you open data and everyone knows what you're doing and then can control, like in real time, what you're doing, then then I think that that works. And I think that uh, countries should be encouraged to do that. And, and EBRD and our institutions should should also and can also uh, encourage this, this kind of behavior. I mean, you've raised that question of what the multilateral development banks, including the EBRD, can do. So is there more that can be done on corruption? Is there a role for the MDBs and the EBRD? Sure, yeah. So so to begin with, I think well, what, what I just said, is, I think it's one of, the, one of the important things. But then I think all these important organizations should lead by the examples. So basically, top management should be actively showing that integrity really matters. Uh, because basically, you know, people do what others do. It's the small uh, things, isn't it, actually, that, that are exactly. really important. In yeah, the, in exactly. So you have to do and you have to act, uh, again, as I say, actively show that you care about integrity. It's not something, uh, you know, irrelevant. It's something that you really care about. Uh, and I think that's one of the most most important things for, for these kind of organizations to do. Are you hopeful you spend a lot of time looking into corruption in, in various countries? Are you hopeful this is a battle where progress can be made? Because the evidence is not that encouraging. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think uh, that, that, I mean, I would say there's hope. Uh, I think uh, if, you know, uh, precisely, if we can lead by the example, then things will start to change because... Again, one of the most important determinants of corruption is uh, corrupt moral values, and I think there's a lot of work that can be done there. It's not a quick fix, though, is it? It is not. No, no, it is not for sure, but but I think, uh, I mean, in my paper, I showed that uh, bad behavior spurs bad culture, but I think it also works the other way around, so I think there's a hope. Nicholas, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's unfortunately all we have time for today. Meanwhile, you can share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember that uh, reviewing and rating Pocket Economics, well, that helps others to find it. Please do it. Until next time, bye. <laughs>